This year in Foundations, we are walking through um, the, what the Bible has to say about the priority of love in the family. The priority of love in the family and really going through what Paul calls the more excellent way from 1 Corinthians 12.31. The more excellent way is to be motivated by agape love. Agape love is selfless and unconditional love. And so the more excellent way is more excellent than pridefully seeking a showy gift or something like that or the notoriety that comes with recognition, which is what the uh, Corinthians were all about. Um, and he says the more excellent way is agape love. And so and then he, he goes through and kind of gives a definition, um, an outline um, of what agape love looks like. And that's what we're walking through. And this morning, rather this evening, we are going to be looking at um, the fact that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Lo love does not take into account a wrong suffered from 1 Corinthians 13.5. So negatively, it does not keep a record of wrongs. And positively, love is going to be actively forgiving those who wrong us. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. But in Corey Ten Boom's book, the hiding place, she writes that one of the most difficult things that a Christian will face is offering genuine forgiveness to those who have deeply hurt us. Forgiveness, a lot of times, is easier said than done. So I don't know if you've ever been deeply hurt by a loved one or been consistently just treated in an unthoughtful way by a loved one. Um, but it's not always easy to forgive them. And sometimes we lie to ourselves. Sometimes we think that when Jesus commanded us to forgive one another, um, to not keep a record of wrongs, he didn't know my situation. He didn't know my dad. He didn't know the way my child is, is treating me. Or he doesn't understand the depth of my hurt. And yet he does understand. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sins. So Jesus does understand. He does know the hurt. And he commands that we forgive precisely because he understands and he knows that even the deepest wounds can be healed through his mercy. And Corey ten Boom is a good example of that. Corey ten Boom worked against the Nazis in World War II by hiding Jews in her home. And when she was caught, she was sent to a concentration camp where she was stripped of her dignity. She saw her father and her sister named Betsy die right in front of her. And she suffered more at the hands of very evil people than you and I can really possibly imagine. Very difficult situation, and that's precisely why her encounter with forgiveness is so memorable. And she writes in her book, she says, I was at a church service in Munich, and I saw him. I saw the former SS Nazi man who stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's plain blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, and to think that, as you say, he washed away my sins. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine, she says, and I, who had preached so often to people about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. 
even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or clarity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, she says, the most incredible thing happened. My heart sprang, in my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our own forgiveness that this happens, that this hinges, but on his. So when he tells us to love our enemies and forgive our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And you are never more loving. You're not never exemplifying agape, selfless love than when you are forgiving someone who has deeply hurt you. So what I want to do is look at how we can better exemplify Christ's love by answering four questions related to not keeping a record of wrongs. The first question is, what does it mean that love does not take into account a wrong suffered? What are we talking about here? What is this definition? What's the command here? How are we supposed to act? Well, if we break this down into two main words that are associated in this phrase, the first one is um, a Greek word translated, or basically it, it, to say it is logizomai, okay, which I'm not really supposed to say to Greek, but I did that because it is translated into English basically as a log or a ledger. Okay, so you, you are not to keep a ledger. Okay, this is an accounting or a math term that means to calculate or to reckon or to keep a record. And in business, for example, this is a very good thing. In business, you want to keep a record. A, a log of transactions so that you can consult them later. But in relationships, in your family, this is devastating to keep a record or account of wrongs because it's very hurtful, it's unloving, and it's destructive. And this ledger or record, of course, is typically in your mind. I mean, I have heard of people that actually keep a ledger of wrongs that their husband or wife have done. But typically, this ledger or this log of wrongs is going to be in your mind. That so that you can go back and you can think through these things and you start to dwell on them and it becomes very destructive in your family. And that's why the New King James says that love thinks no evil. It's because in the mind is where this that you, you continually are going to think through these things, dredge them up, and it becomes very devastating. The second word, translated wrong here, means morally reprehen reprehensible, bad, or evil. So this is just the general Greek word for evil, and it includes very heinous crimes and smaller things as well. Okay, so Matthew uses this word to describe the wicked tenants in the parable of the wicked tenants. In Matthew 21, these are the men who killed and stoned the prophets that, that were sent and killed and stoned the son. Okay, so this is a very heinous, potentially heinous or wicked thing. Paul also uses it elsewhere to describe false teachers. And there's no love loss, if you read through the New Testament, between New Testament authors and false teachers. And so Paul writes in Philippians 3.2, to beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, that's our word, beware of the false circumcision. The point is that the, the hypothetical wrong suffered here is potentially a very wicked thing. It's not like there's a category of sin so bad that it's unforgivable. 
This is so bad that I can keep a record of this one. These other ones, I'll let this one go. No, you are to keep no record of wrongs, period. So that's what it means. What does this not mean? Well, it does not mean that you pretend that the wrong didn't happen. It's not as if you hide your head in the sand and pretend that this wrong didn't happen. It's that you decide not to make it a part of the equation in your relationship. You're not keeping a record of it. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences, either natural or otherwise, to this sin. It doesn't mean that you overlook a law that was broken or an unsafe situation like abuse. And it doesn't mean that you will automatically trust this person. Depending on what they've done, trust might take a while to come back. But rather, this is talking about a heart toward reconciliation. And so if you're keeping a record of wrongs, if you're tallying up sins basically to use as ammunition later on in your relationships, then you are sinning, you're being very unloving, and we should not be doing that. But even though we know it's wrong, and we all pretty much know that this is wrong, but we are still tempted to do this. So why are we tempted to keep a record of wrongs? What's the temptation? Well, first is a fleshly attitude, our unredeemed humanness okay so if you read through first peter 3 first thessalonians 5 romans 12 also the book of proverbs and periodically through the old testament there's a um, a theme that keeps coming up and it is that we are to keep no um, we are not to return evil for evil okay consistently scripture tells us we're not to return evil for evil and this is a multiple warnings which are necessary because our flesh is tempted to do just that when you are harmed your flesh wants to lash out and return that evil you want them to feel the sting to feel the pain that they've caused and so in your flesh you're going to hide that sin away you're going to keep a record of it and then you're going to to bring it out later on in order to fleshly um, make sure that they know how bad that they truly hurt you and so we're tempted to do this because we have an unredeemed humanness and we have a fleshly attitude sometimes. Secondly, we are tempted to keep a record of wrongs because of a failure to trust in God. A failure to trust in God. Nobody in this room, nobody in the world likes to be hurt. And so you put up defensive mechanisms to keep that from happening. Sometimes we keep a record of wrongs as a, a defensive mechanism that stems from a failure to trust God to protect us and a failure to trust God to avenge the wrong. The thought process goes like this. If I let this go, if I erase this from the ledger, if I let love cover this and I forget this offense, I'm afraid she's going to do this again. And so I need to keep this ledger. I need, to, I need to hide this away, periodically bring this up just so that they understand and they know how bad they hurt me and they're never going to do this again. Otherwise, I might continue to be persecuted I might continue to be taken advantage of. But scripture says in Romans 12, really another section of scripture that tells us how we are to love one another, that that is not where our focus needs to be. It says that God will avenge us. Verse 14 starts, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So rather than seek revenge, hide that away to avenge yourself. Not only do we put that away, but love seeks to bless them and asks God to actually bless them rather than curse them. 
And Paul goes on in Romans 12, verses 19, to say, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. God is going to avenge it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Proverbs also says in Proverbs twenty twenty two, he says, Do not say to yourself or to them, I will pay you back for this wrong. Rather, wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. So it is not your job to avenge a wrong. It's not your job to hold on to the wrong. You don't need to worry about whether or not they're going to be punished or have justice or whatever for this wrong. The truth is that God is the perfect judge. God is your strong tower. He is your deliverer. He will protect you. And so if you trust in him, you will be less likely to be tempted towards keeping a record of wrongs. God says, trust me to avenge and protect. You concern yourself with forgiveness, reconciliation, and love. So we're tempted to keep a record because of a fleshly attitude, a failure to trust God, and third, frustration with a lack of change. Frustration with a lack of change. It's hard to live with somebody who refuses to change. Maybe it's 10 years that you've pleaded with this person that you're living with, your husband or your wife, for this little idiosyncrasy that they're doing, and they just continue to do it. And like, if you really cared about me, you would stop, because this is important to me. And they're just not stopping. And so you begin to keep a record of this. This has happened for 10 years, every week, every day, whatever. And it just is going to build up a frustration over a lack of change, and that's going to cause you to keep more of a record. It's not fun when people continually treat you bad. You pray for change, but the Lord continues to allow it. You plead with the loved one, but they are stiff-necked, and they continue to do that. And it becomes wearisome, and the temptation is to build towards resentment, to keep a record of that, or to give up altogether. But Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, do not grow weary in doing well or doing good. And so we, we continue, even though it's a long, hard slog, through this, potentially, you continue to trust Christ, you lean on him, and you trust in his goodness. Could be something like a deep hurt. It could be just something small, an inconsiderate, an unthoughtful thing, an unbecoming thing that drives you nuts. And if you dwell on that, you keep a record of that wrong, it's going to build and build and build into a frustration. So those are some of the reasons why we are tempted to keep a record of wrongs. But agape love does not do that. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And as we look at how important this is, as we answer the question, what are the stakes? Why does this matter? Maybe you're saying, I hear what you're saying, but in my flesh, I want to continue holding on to this. I don't trust the Lord enough, and I'm going to hold on to this because I want to make sure this never happens again. What is at stake? Well, first is enslavement versus freedom. Enslavement versus freedom. You know, the lie is that I'm going to get some sort of satisfaction by keeping a record of this. But holding on to an evil done against you puts shackles on your own hands as a root of bitterness will begin to grow. And so you are enslaving yourself instead of giving yourself the freedom of forgiving them, forgetting it, and repairing that relationship. You are contributing to more of the problem. What's at stake? Enslavement versus freedom. Next, bitterness versus happiness. 
the result of keeping a record of wrongs is irritability, which erodes your relationship in your family. The result is also resentment. If you have an ESV, this is actually translated. It just jumps right to the, to the end result and says love is not irritable or resentful. But if you are keeping a record of wrongs, that's going to build resentment. It's going to build bitterness. Unforgiveness is unloving towards the offending person. Right? You're being unloving towards them, and it's causing a cancer in your own heart called bitterness. John MacArthur says that keeping track of things done against us is a sure way to unhappiness. Our unhappiness and that of those on whom we keep records. But if you buy into the lie, you believe that keeping this record will give you some sort of satisfaction, you're going to build that bitterness in your heart and you're going to grow in unhappiness. I mean, think about this. Have you ever met a happy person who had a long list of things? Every time you talked to them, it was just all about all these bad things that happened to them, all these things that people have sinned against him. He just has a long ledger. That guy is not a happy person. He's not blessed. The biblical word that results from keeping a record of wrongs is bitterness, which describes basically just the bitter taste of certain foods. Bitterness is an internal self-inflicting wound that is built from unforgiveness. But when you give in to the temptation to keep a record of wrongs, you give in to the temptation to be unforgiving, you are watering and nurturing that seed of bitterness that will one day grow into a weed and control your behavior. Hebrews 12 likens bitterness to a seed. Hebrews 12:15 says this. It says, "See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness is springing up causing trouble, and by it many will be defiled." So the writer of Hebrews says, see to it or watch yourself. He says, this is going to be a temptation. Watch yourself. He, he says that it is short of the grace of God, this act of unforgiveness, of holding a record of wrongs, of being bitter towards somebody, is short of God's grace. It is unbecoming of a believer. And he says, watch yourself that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble not only for you, not only for the person that you're being unforgiving towards, but also those around you as they see how you're acting. Lou Priolo describes it this way. He says, when someone hurts you, you can think of that as someone dropping a seed into the soil of your heart. At that point, you can choose to respond in two ways. Either one, you can choose to pluck the seed by forgiving your offender, or you can begin to cultivate that seed by reviewing the hurt over and over again in your mind. And bitterness is the result of dwelling on that sin. And he goes on to, to give some diagnoses, diagnosi, whatever that is, evidences, we'll say that, of bitterness, evidences that you are keeping a record of wrongs. The things that will destroy your relationship, lead to unhappiness, lead to more and more bitterness in your life. Okay, so I've taken those and I've, Put them in question form. I just want to read them. And so in your heart, just diagnose yourself. Are these things that you are struggling with? And particularly in relation to the people closest to you. You know, these things happen in your family. The people closest to you are where we find ourselves becoming more and more embittered. You're with these people all the time. A lot of times you have more grace for people at work than you do in, for the people in your own family because you have a longer ledger. 
with a longer list of things, a longer time of things that have built up. So ask these questions. Do I have difficulty resolving conflict? Do I hang on to the conflict? Do I pursue vengeance, either face-to-face, verbally, or spitefully, behind their back, or maybe even physically? Do I pursue vengeance? Am I angry? Do I lash out in anger or give the silent treatment or the cold shoulder? You know, if you, if you don't start fresh with a clean slate, every time there is an offense, these offenses build up and they eventually come to a head and you're going to lash out in anger. Does sarcasm describe my interactions with mean-spirited jokes or scornful replies? Do I increasingly get frustrated and irritable with non-sinful behavior? Just small molehills of behavior of your spouse or your kids that you turn into mountains. Because you've got a long list of, of things that they've done that you've asked them not to do. Maybe you're hypersensitive and you're easily offended. Maybe you rebel against authority. Depression is another symptom of bitterness. You know, in the same way that running on a treadmill day after day is going to zap your energy, fi- uh, your emotional energy. It takes emotional energy to maintain a grudge. So rather than bury the hatchet, you've got an axe to grind, and you're always keeping that going. And that is going to to build in your heart. And it leads to to depression and other symptoms, emotional symptoms. So if those are describing you, then freedom and reconciliation can be found through throwing away the ledger and seeking forgiveness. So the next thing at stake, and this is a big one, we've got um, enslavement versus freedom, bitterness versus happiness, and the next is gospel understanding. Could have done like assurance versus um, doubt, but I didn't want to do that. I don't know why I didn't want to, but whatever. Gospel understanding, okay? This is big, guys. Do you really understand the gospel? Do you really understand how much you have been forgiven of? Paul says in Philippians 2, 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and you are commanded to forgive. You are commanded to love one another. Are you consistently forgiving or do you keep a ledger? We are to be imitators of Christ. You know, it's been said, there's a quote that you are never more like Christ than when you forgive. I couldn't track down who said the quote. So if it's a pope or something, then don't email me. Actually, Actually, do email, because I like to know, okay? Let me know. You are never more like Christ than when you forgive. And the opposite is true as well. You are more, never more unlike Christ than when you hold on to a, an offense and you refuse to forgive. You are not being Christ-like. If you are harboring unforgiveness and bitterly keeping a record of wrongs, you need to return to the gospel. You need to remember all that you have been forgiven of, all that Christ has forgiven you, which is going to help you truly understand and and be willing to forgive others. And this is kind of, you know, written out for us in living color in a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 21. This is the parable of the unforgiving slave. You're probably familiar with it. Jesus teaches here that unforgiveness will be punished severely. A couple things this is not teaching. This is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. You know, at the end, the unforgiving, unforgiving slave is chastised, not executed. And he's not thrown out, but rather 
the, the word verbiage there is tortured or chastised. Okay? This is rather a stark reminder that the one who understands all that God has forgiven him of is willing to forgive others. So let's pick it up in verse 21, right before Jesus tells this parable. It says, Then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Like I'm taking what the rabbis said, I'm doubling it, and I'm adding one, right? I'm, I'm up there seven times. Obviously, if someone's asking me to forgive them seven times, they don't really mean it, but I'm still going to forgive them. Right, Jesus? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is kind of an unreachable amount. A bottomless well of forgiveness is what we need to have. And then he tells the parable. He says, verse 23, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, which was like a trillion dollars or something, it was like an insurmountable amount of money, that person was brought to him, but since he, had, he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and his children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found a fellow slave who owned him, owed him a hundred denarii, which is a fraction of what he owed the Lord. And he seized that man and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell on the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they went and reported this to their Lord, all that had happened. And then summoning him, the Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father, Jesus sums it up here, verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. In other words, who do you think you are? How dare you not forgive other people when you have been forgiven so much more? So if you're consistently struggling here, if you're consistently keeping a ledger in your mind of the wrongs suffered, perhaps you need to go back to the gospel. Perhaps you need to, to look at what you have been forgiven of. Understand the depths that God has forgiven you. So there's a lot at stake. A lot at stake. Do you truly understand the gospel if you're unwilling to forgive? But we are called to love and forgive. So the last question is, how does love act? How does love act? Well, agape love chooses, makes a conscious choice to throw out the ledger. Don't forget these descriptions of agape love, all of these that we are learning about, they're all verbs. They're action words. Forgiveness is an action. Love is an action. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can choose to put off impatience and put on long-suffering. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you as a born-again believer, you can choose to be kind and courteous, even when people are not kind and courteous to you. And you can also choose to not keep a record or an account of wrongs suffered against you. When you forgive, just a few principles here related to forgiveness, not a ton of time here, but when you forgive, you are promising to no longer hold your offender's sin against him or bring it up to him again. Okay? If you've forgiven him, you're not going to discuss it again. Now, one caveat is unless there is a genuine love and a desire for growth. So, for example, if you have teenage kids and they get a speeding ticket and they ask you to forgive them for that, I will forgive them, of course, for that, but I'm still going to bring it up because I want them to grow like the next time they take the keys. Like, hey, remember what happened last time? I don't want you to get another speeding ticket. Speeding is dangerous, right? It's not that I'm harboring bitterness towards him, but I want him to genuinely grow, and so I will, I will bring that up because of that desire for growth. Even in your relationships with your spouse, you may um, have a sin issue that you're dealing with, and, and your spouse loves you, and they bring that to you and say, hey, how can I pray for you with this? It's not because they're throwing that in your face out of bitterness. It's like they genuinely love you, and they're bringing that up for growth. But by and large, when you are forgiving, you are making a promise not to bring that up as ammunition or as a way to make them feel bad. You make every effort to think well of him, to pray for him or her, to speak well of him. So forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a promise. Love chooses to forgive, not because it doesn't hurt anymore, not because it's happened so long that you're just numb to it and you don't care anymore. It still may burden your heart, but you forgive because you trust the Lord, because you love Christ, and because you love the person that is offending you. So how does love act? Well, first, love forgives like Christ. Love forgives like Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn real quick, yeah, to Ephesians chapter 4, verses, starting in verse 31. As we seek to forgive like Christ, this is a very good passage to go to, um, which instructs us to do just that. Paul says in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We can put that under category of being unforgiving, being keeping a ledger of wrongs. Taking an account of those wrongs suffered against you leads to bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and evil speaking. And then he says, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted or compassionate or loving, forgiving one another, and then two big words, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Verse 32 begins with an imperative, a command to be kind, to be tenderhearted, compassionate, to be forgiving of one another. And God is not going to give you the command as a born-again Christian to do that and then not give you the ability to do that. Okay, and in the same way, just as God has forgiven you. So think about every word, think about every thought, think about every deed done in darkness that no one else knows, God knows, God forgives, He keeps no record of wrongs. Psalm 30, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, kept track of iniquities, if you're marking, if you have a ledger against me, no one can stand. Lord, who's going to stand if you're keeping a record of my wrongs? 
2 Corinthians 5.19 says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, world to himself, and then our word, not counting their trespasses against them. In Christ, God is not keeping a ledger of your sins against you. He's not counting your trespasses against you, and it is in that way that we are to forgive others. Just like Christ, who was committed no sin, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, spit upon, hung on the cross, as they're driving the nails into his hands, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It is that heart, in that way, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So love forgives like Christ, which means that love forgives quickly. Love forgives quickly. The offense may hurt you, but it's also damaging to your loved one. Sin leads to death. Unresolved sin leads to, to problems in your relationship. You love that person. You want to resolve this quickly, and so you go to them quickly. And you reconcile that because you love them. Love will quickly forgive and reconcile a relationship. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 25, make friends quickly with your opponent while you're going with him to court. Don't wait. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Drop everything. Do this quickly. And you can forgive quickly because forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not an act of the emotions. The emotions often will follow the verbal forgiveness. And so you can do this quickly. Love forgives quickly. And next, love forgives completely. Again, we're to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. And Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12, tells us exactly how completely God has forgiven us. He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's a complete removal. It is a pure and total cleansing. God will not bring up your sins when you stand before him in Christ. And just like God has forgiven us completely, removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, that is how we are to forgive as well. And finally, love forgives unconditionally. Love forgives unconditionally. It doesn't wait for the offending party to show that they really mean it. Again, Peter told, John, Jesus told Peter in Matthew 18 to forgive 70 times 70. You know, the temptation is to think, well, they've done this so many times, I'm going to wait, I'll forgive them when they show me that they really mean it. No, forgiveness Love forgives unconditionally. Again, Christ forgave as they were driving the nails in, without condition. He didn't wait for them to, to show that they were truly repentant. Love puts no conditions on forgiveness. Again, this doesn't mean there are no consequences. It doesn't mean that you just open wide the doors no matter what they've done and you're going to trust them no matter what. But Jesus said that we must forgive from the heart and we need to do that unconditionally. So you are called to agape love, and so you are called to forgiveness. To stop keeping a record of wrongs, because love does not do that. And in place of the resentment, you're going to start building love. In place of the unresolved conflict, you'll begin having peace. In place of seeking vengeance, you have a prayerful desire for growth. In place of the silent treatment, you're going to start having vibrant, Christ-honoring conversations, because you're relationship 
is reconciled. And you can go from anger and bitterness and wrath and malice to kind-hearted, tender-hearted love. And you can approach each offense, which will inevitably come. You're still living with these people. They're sinners. Your family, there's going to be sins against you. These are going to keep coming. Hopefully less and less, but you can approach each one of these offenses with a clean slate, a fresh opportunity to put on display the love of God, put on display the forgiveness that Christ has offered you and your family. And in conclusion, there's a quote here from Christostom. He says, a wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. Love quenches wrongs rather than records them. So you may have been deeply hurt by a loved one, maybe going on for a long time, and the fleshly desire, the thing that you want to do in your flesh is to stew on that, keep a ledger of that, make sure that it never happens again. But when you take that responsibility on yourself, it will crush you because it's not your job. It will ruin your relationships. And so that's why we take our focus off of ourselves, the wrong that we've been done to, it's been done to us, and we focus on Christ. Trust him to avenge. Trust him to protect us. Trust him to give us the freedom that comes when we lovingly forgive one another, your friend, your spouse, your child. Christ will give you the ability to love and forgive and to keep no record of wrongs. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you loved us first. Lord, that you showed us our love, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, that you forgave us when we put our faith in your son. Um, you removed all of our sin, and you completely forgave us, and you brought us into your family, and you keep no record of wrongs. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, the ability to do that, or that you would convict us when we keep um, a record of that, an account of what has been done to us, Lord, when we are unforgiving. Lord, it is not easy to forgive, particularly when we've been really hurt. Um, and so I pray, Lord, that in our families we would be quick to do that. We would love one another by forgiving one another quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.